You are listening to Terrific City, and this is the second to last episode of our first season on Times Square. We hope you'll be back here for more. Uh, We hope we'll be back here for more. Uh, (laughs) So if you want that to happen, let us know by becoming one of our monthly backers. Go to terrific.city. If you join us for as little as $1 a month, you will be making sure that we can keep coming back here to you. Hey, that's terrific. That's really terrific. 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 Just terrific. They're terrific. That's terrific. Really terrific. This is terrific stuff. Thanks a lot. That's terrific. Terrific. A1 terrific. That's not so terrific. You feel terrific afterwards. I'm Melissa Jira Grant. And I'm Cheyenne Picardo. And this is Terrific City, a podcast on the city and screen life of 1970s America. On the show, everyone is on the take, but there is hope in gay porn. We welcome Jeremiah Moss, the author of Vanishing New York and the long-running blog of the same name, to talk about what remains of Times Square's glory days. And then we talk about Flaming Creatures, Jack Smith's experimental 1963 film, which ruined one Supreme Court justice's chance at being the chief. Thank you, Nixon. Stick around. If Papa were here, I'm sure he'd tell her. There's some wisdom out of the mouth of one of the mobsters in The Deuce. There are so many mobsters now, by the way, that I really can't keep track of them. But this one says this. It's like nobody knows the rules anymore. Now that some obscenity prosecutions aren't going forward now that it's clear that you can buy off the police and they won't raid your massage parlor what are the rules because what's the mob even for anymore how what are we doing why do you need these pimps and the mob and all of that are we being phased out and then just to add another layer on top of that uh mayor Lindsay, new york's mayor just failed spectacularly in his bid for the presidency. Uh, The mob here apparently are also paying attention to that because they're nervous now that he's lost Florida, um, where he lost, by the way, to George Wallace. I want George Wallace to debate me in front of the people of Florida because I think they're entitled to something better than appeals to fear and division. I've run the second biggest government in America for six years. I've seen how easy it is to divide our people and how dangerous. That's why I've tried to fight crime with more and better police and new approaches to drugs, not by putting soldiers with bayonets every two feet. I've seen how important it is to stop racial violence, to open jobs and college classrooms to white and black alike, and how indefensible it is to perpetuate racial injustice. Arch-segregationist George Wallace 1972. Fucking killed him in Florida. And <laughs> Lindsay even had ads with uh, Carol O'Connor in them on his side. On Tuesday, April 4th, vote for John Lindsay for president, a fighter, not a talker. Yeah, I mean, be part of the Lindsay constituency. Maybe those didn't play well in Florida. Maybe they didn't understand. I mean, Carol O'Connor did do a lot to try to, you know, cancel out the. Archie Bunker image, but but I then don't know. he kind of went like used the Archie Bunker voice in the ads. <laughs> yeah, I so think it I just didn't work. It was bad direction. It was a mess. Anyway, Lindsay's clearly not going to become president by this point. We're at the early parts of 1972, um, and it's a really depressing presidential campaign. Also, like uh, he got more coverage, I think, for like looking attractive in a mm-hmm. swimsuit in Florida <laughs> than any of his actual uh, platform in Florida. So. Why does the mob care about Mayor Lindsay becoming president or not? Because what do you do when you're a politician coming back with your tail between your legs? You go for an easy target, right? And maybe that's going to be cracking down again on the sex industry. Again, the election year. It has never stopped. It's always the election year when things aren't going well. That's what you do. Let's get rid of the vice. And now we have this new thing uh, called the Public Moral Squad. Mm. Uh, so Was that even real? Like, I mean, when he said Public oh, Moral Squad. So yeah. Ralph Macchio comes into the room as yet another member of the 14th Precinct on another version of the take for who, I don't know, himself. He may have been bumped up because now he's part, it's a special task force. So that's mm-hmm. like going to, you know, encompass more than one precinct. Right. So just if you're trying to keep track at home now, the the various entities <laughs> that are on Who's the take, getting money? we have downtown slash, you know, Center Street slash like 
the upper echelons of NYPD command, we have the 14th Precinct, and now we have the Special Moral Squad. We're already paying the 14th every week, and the people I work for already pay to buy in downtown. You're late on the tit here. I'm not from downtown. I'm not collecting for the 14th. I just got detailed to the Public Morals Task Force. That's a fresh pad. Task Force? It's a new one. It's gonna clean up the deuce, in case you haven't heard. 200 on top of what I'm already laying on the precinct. I'll be back Thursday. Till then, au reservoir. Yeah, the karate kid rolls up to your massage parlor and says, like, I want you to kick me $200 a week. Yeah, and then leaves with an au reservoir. Au reservoir. He's a classy, classy guy. (laughs) They're running two shifts now. Daytime girls clock in for the lunch crowd. And then another crew comes in around 10. Have you checked the property records on these places? Property records? To get the names of the shell companies, at least. Even with the shell, you can check the articles of incorporation and maybe get the name of a lawyer who's acting as a resident agent. You start to look at all of that, then maybe you start to see a pattern. You sound like you need a gold shield guy. Or maybe a lawyer for three. We've already talked about Hustling on the show, uh, the 1975 made-for-TV movie that's an adaptation of the reporting of New York Magazine reporter Gail Shee. Um, we have yet more quoting of Hustling going on oh, in God. the news this week. As uh, I looked at you when this scene happened, I was like, again? Is I mean, really? <laughs> and it's, it's, it's just the reason it's so mind boggling is of all of the different film and TV that the Deuce creators have name checked, Hustling has not been one of them. And okay. it is such a direct influence in terms of the story. Hand me through a couple of the other examples. So Taxi Driver was one of them. This has nothing to do with Taxi Driver, like zero. I have seen not one iota of, of this show that reminds me of Taxi Driver at all. Like, Shaft? No, I'm sorry. Not e- like Shaft, Shaft, not really. I'm trying to think of like what. Maybe they said Taking a Pelham 123, which I actually Definitely seen. not. Taking, okay, so Taking a Pelham 123 involves subways. We have not, I don't think we've been on we've a subway. barely been on the subway. I think like one, either Frankie or Vinny, I can't keep track of them, took the subway once from Bay Ridge to Times Square. <laughs> once. Yeah, I, yeah, once. I mean, it, it's really barely like the movies, the main movies of the 70s that, I mean, Clute, yes, we have heard Clute mention. Clute does clearly have some. But there is an entire storyline right. with multiple main characters mm-hmm. that is drawn from hustling without any acknowledgement. And I don't know, it's it's no still glaring at this point. I would return that paper and ask for a rewrite or ask for citations. Like, it would be, I would be very upset. I would think that someone was trying to con me into thinking that they came up with original material. And it's clear that, you know, yes, they are like drawing on actual historic events, but to right. put those historic events in the same mouths of the same people that in are the in this, uh, in the same kinds of scenes, it's it's a little, yeah. it's a little jarring. Um, so, so so what we learn from those scenes quoting Hustling this week is that, you know, yes, the mob not only are running some of the massage parlors, but they're using shell companies to do so, which gives a paper trail for journalists and for cops. Our cop of conscience, uh, Officer Alston, he starts to flip yeah. this week. He mm-hmm. starts to kind of go Serpico. Me, I'm just a guy with seven years in the bag. Yeah, well, you figured it out pretty well to this point. Well, there's five places now between the deuce and three eight. And you say they're paying to be protected, right? Shit. We pushed them into the parlors. Been running women off the streets for a while now. That's been the goddamn plan all along. Yeah. The parlors are all paying us. Why are you telling me this? I don't know. Can I bring a bit of a crackpot theory in? Sure. What do you think the odds are that they start fiddling around with these shell companies and they uncover that Abby's father is the owner of one of the shell companies? Which with would a party, basically be hustling. Another right? hustling thing where there's a party and the party has a person and the person at the party is like one of the people. And yeah, I don't, I don't know if they're going to go that way because it seems like they have this other sort of agenda, which is showing how the mob, Italian, but, you know, white, are moving in to the sex industry. The police are also asserting themselves in the sex industry. And I don't know that they're going to go above their heads because I feel like they're just showing how those people are sort of are putting the pimps who are all black with 
uh, there's that hippie pimp, but nobody thinks he's a good pimp. So I always forget <laughs> about him. Um, the almost entirely black pimps out of business to the mm-hmm. point now where the pimps are just like hanging out at what the are diner we with do? nothing to do. Used to be, I get up every afternoon knowing what I needed to do with the night. I knew what I was there for. Now you're just dropping the girls off in one of the parlors and killing time, right? Yeah. The other night I didn't know what to do with my damn self. I went to a movie. What'd you see? Fantasia. The Disney thing? Yeah, it's playing over there on Third Avenue. I like that shit too. I really like the dancing hippos. Fantasia. See, now Larry's point is well taken in that we become extraneous in this whole situation. Pussy's still the pussy. The money's still the money, but the pimp. Who the fuck is he right now? There are still pimps in the equation. It's Mm -hmm. just now the pimps wear blue uniforms, right? Right, yeah. And also, there is definitely an effect on a couple of the pimps who don't do so well with the idea of the loss of power, namely one Cece. So Cece drops Ashley off at the massage parlor for her shift. And as soon as he's out of sight, she's like, nah, ends up uh, crashing at Abby's place. And uh, she's done ostensibly as far as we know she is done um which means that again like not only has this whole pushing everything from outside inside um created a complete change in the landscape of Times square area it is in fact undermining the pimps quite literally and depriving them of people you know there's none of that eyes on the street neighborhood thing anymore now no. that people are working indoors they're not hanging out at the diner between shifts it's a little stir not, hey how you doing there. yeah i mean there's a number of scenes of people just sitting inside doing nothing whereas before it's like going outside was when you had your life and you had other chances to interact with people i mean the reason that ashley knows that you know, I think there's a way out for her is she has other people, right? She has Vinny, she has Frankie, mm-hmm. and she recognizes the girl from the bar, Abby, you know, because she's gone and had drinks in the bar mm-hmm. and thinks that she's someone trustworthy and crashes right. with her for a few days. Abby, we got to talk, yeah, talk about Abby. We've the white savior Barbie elephant Avoiding really getting an Abby because she is a very oh. boring character. I think you correctly guessed that we are being sort of prompted to cringe at her yeah um and i expected that to turn into some kind of awful comeuppance not yet (laughs) maybe we're gonna get that in episode eight maybe we're gonna maybe you have to wait a few seasons for that to happen but all i know is that there's not a single thing this girl does that makes me not want to like it became so throw a shoe it became so clear that abby who you know made a grand gesture of dropping out of nyu to become independent (laughs) grand gesture uh she she, turned around and walked out that's a grand gesture yeah and told mommy you know that's fine i'll be fine yeah um you know i'll find an apartment i'll be a barmaid fine she does all of these things she gets this boyfriend Vinny, um and then she gets this invitation in the mail some fancy cocktail situation in connecticut that her family will be at and she brings Vinny, but she doesn't tell him what he's walking into. Nope, doesn't she... tell him it's a high-class Connecticut affair, doesn't tell him, like, he's supposed to be in black tie, doesn't tell him any of that. And she walks in in one of Ashley's, like, work dresses. Work dresses, yeah. It's like plunging red halter thing and, you know, tosses her coat in the car. And, you know, Vinny, to his credit, sort of knows how to conduct himself. He's mm-hmm. polite. He, like, apologizes for not being dressed. And Abby, for me, what this just clinched is Abby is slumming. Abby is taking pleasure in she wants tweaking to live out with her the common parents. people. Yeah. And, <laughs> you know, if you call your dad, he can stop it all. Yeah. And, like, she leaves this party with a check earned because her boyfriend, Vinny, if he's even her boyfriend, he's also her boss, vouched for her saying to her she's dad, a good worker. yeah, she's a good worker. And he was like, that's what I want to hear. And so he apparently cuts her a check, which um, – she sort of undercut all of this. She she signs it over to Ashley so she can is, get out of town. You know, the who is the whore who wants saving? Unlike Darlene, who is the whore who didn't want saving. I it's it still smacks to me of something that makes me queasy. It's just she got to she got to do her good deed. She's gonna go to sleep and feel good about it. And if she like, needs another check from daddy, she can get she another can get one. Another check from daddy. You know, like the only difference here, I guess, with the, the situation with Darlene is that with Darlene, she like hands her the bus ticket. Yeah. Right. And in this case, she actually seems to trust Ashley enough to just give her money, give her money. and have her come up with her plan right. of what she wants to do. Right. Um, but yeah, it's very, very clear that whenever she wanted to leave this world, Abby could do so and is not reliant on someone to, you know, sign her over daddy's check. 
again, I don't know what the heck is in store for her. I hope she learns something. She's certainly not learning anything right now. But I do feel like there's something that's going to end up punishing her later and breaking her in some way in order to mature her, which I think is a very lazy plot device, but I could see it happening just with how cringeworthy everything she does is. The bright spot this week, if I had to pick one, mm-hmm. is something that I think very personally it was exciting to us to see. The celebration of the 100th screening of a porn film called The Boys in the, the Sand, Sand, which we talked about last week at Dixon. Well, at Dixon, Dixon mentioned it. Mentioned yeah, it. we talked about The Boys in the Band, which is like the parody seed for the boys in the sand which was again kind of ushering in this porno chic the same thing that um kind of behind the green door like if you think about it that's a gay movie very kind of like sun-kissed skin and buns weekends on fire weekends island. On fire island and a very devoted fan base i mean after this party there are guys there who come up to uh, the performers and say like i you know drove here from hundreds of miles away right. just so i could be here it's clear that this is very important to people above and beyond just watching people have sex and not just a gay audience like this this audience is full of just everybody i mean it's whoever wants to see the newest thing it could be like you know the who's who of the art art scene of new york in that day it's just i wish i knew where the screening was i mean maybe we could go back and find out maybe this Mm -hmm. really was a real party um but that you know, it wasn't that long ago, just a couple of episodes ago, where the police were busting right. a theater. Um, but maybe because this was like in an art house context, you know, it was a little, at least at this moment in time, that an art house context would yeah. have been a safer place to show this film. Perhaps. I mean, they can't, they can't be everywhere, especially when they're running around all over the place trying to get money from whatever establishment will give it to them. Maybe they just were somewhere else that day. The police are just too busy being pimps to be art critics. Yeah, exactly. That's what's going on. Exactly. <laughs> One hopple pop. Hope it's like home. Leon, who owns and at least manages the diner, develops a bit of a affinity for it's kind of a parallel to what's happening in the massage parlor with the union guy, guy. Yeah. Which is kind of based probably more on sexual attraction. What Leon has with this one sex worker is more paternal and definitely protective and definitely he wants to feed her. He wants to she he has wants like to a make her feel dish that he yeah, makes her every time. Yeah. And um and he wants to take care of her, and he does that through patience and food, and then a gun, because he finds that she is getting harassed by her pimp, Reggie Love. At- he has a habit of coming in when she's, like, just having breakfast before going out to work and, like, physically grabbing her out of the diner and making her go to work. And this day, it's like Leon's not having it. Yeah, Leon, it's the last straw, because in um, in a previous scene, she was caught in the massage parlor. The, the massage parlor's been having a bit of a rocky start, but we'll get back to that, um, where she has uh, stolen with her partner kind of like her Maybe her girlfriend. work girlfriend yeah, I guess we'll say um, that uh, they have kind of developed this habit before they start working in the parlors of robbing Johns um, at the last minute and then bolting and you know that's fine doesn't work so well when you're in one place and everybody else is also in the same place so they get caught and when um, it becomes clear to her pimp that this has been something's been going on for quite some time and that he hasn't been getting a cut he beats her up so Leon witnesses the black eye, witnesses what she's trying to, like, you know, cover up with her sunglasses. And then the next time he comes in and threatens her, bang, gone. He calls the cops right that second. On himself. On himself. We have no idea what's going to happen to Leon. Goodbye, President Reggie Love. Yeah, my President Reggie Love. If only Nixon was going out with you. The show is taking away the power from the black pimps and the people who are now being centered in the porn industry and now in the the massage parlor industry are white women. Well, in, like as the workforce, like that's the workforce, who's able yeah. to, you know, move from the street into the parlors and be right. successful and right. who can get the roles in even these early proto-porn films. Yeah. And I mean, like you don't really see too much diversity in any of the film sets. You don't see Ruby there. Um, you don't see Darlene there yet. I mean, you saw Darlene was in a loop that was getting, you know, distributed without a consent. But also in the Massage parlor environment, um, the reason that Darlene and other women of color are getting gigs is because Bobby is kind of throwing the work towards them so that he can hang out with his like his work favorite wife. girl yeah. this like yeah. one white girl with like big 
big doe eyes. Big doe eyes. She kind of knows that she's getting preferential treatment. Oh, she totally knows that she's getting preferential treatment. It's kind of it's kind of ridiculous. He'll like, even kick her money to compensate for the yeah. fact that she's not getting customers. And it's it's really fascinating. It's like on the one hand, we you know we've talked on the show about what made Times Square. A site that, you know, caused consternation and needed to be cracked down on wasn't just because there was vice, but because it was and it was a cross class, cross race Mm -hmm. mix mixing point and absolute intersection of all the different people in the city. Right. And we are seeing the whitening of the sex industry now. Now that this is lucrative, Mm -hmm. who's getting cut out? Yeah. And, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if we hit season two and most of the black pimp characters are are gone. Yeah. Oh boy. That would be. I don't want. I don't want this to be the last I see of Larry Brown. I really, I, I, really. Cece enjoy might stick Larry around. Brown. I mean, his relationship with with Lori, the fact that he crashes the porn set to try to get a cut oh, from her earnings. Yeah. I mean, everything. Not just the massage parlors and the prostitution, but the porn. Even. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he regards as as a threat to his bottom line, his control. Both. Yeah. I do hope that. I mean, I don't know exactly in terms of the historical accuracy what that's going to be. I hope I hope that there is a place for Ruby and Darlene in the worlds that are being explored um, and that they don't end up being sidelined because of history and historical accuracy. If I, ha- if I had to narrow the show down to the one character who's the heart of it, it is Darlene. Yeah, Darlene is so important. <laughs> and, you know, this week she also realizes that it was maybe a mistake to bring a girl from back home in the mm-hmm. country to come work in the city and literally tells her, like, you need to leave or you will die. Yeah. Um, things are getting very tough on the street. And it's mm-hmm. worth pointing out that, I mean, things have always been tough on the street, but what's made them really tough in the last few weeks on the span of the show has been the police mm-hmm. trying to gain control of the industry and doing so in a very violent way. We've stopped short of actually having the cops, like, become tricks so far. They're not even promising they're not going to bust places. Right. They're saying, like, well, we'll give you a warning. Um, and and that's leverage over them, right? You know it's going to be more than that. You can feel that that's, like, the next step in this, like, ridiculous invasion of everything. It's just, I, you know it's And we also coming. know that there's people close to Mayor Lindsay who are close to the organized crime mm-hmm. who own the massage parlor. So, mm-hmm. you know, we'll see how far they follow that money and those shell companies and where it lands them. The following story, reported by Sullen Robb and Nathaniel Shepard Jr., appeared on the front page of the New York Times on July 10th, 1977. We return to the streets where it took place to bring it to you. Four groups are key landlords for Midtown Sex Industry. Four Realty Concerns are the principal landlords for the pornography and sex industry in Midtown Manhattan, an examination of city records has disclosed. Through subsidiaries and partnerships, the four groups own or lease buildings in which 30 tenants are involved in what the police describe as the lucrative, quote, sex industry. A review of real estate records by the New York Times showed that the 30 establishments, massage parlors, book and peep show shops with film viewing machines, live sex shows, topless bars, movie theaters featuring explicit sex films, and hotels catering to prostitutes, make up about one quarter of all such places in the Midtown area. The leading landlord groups are controlled by Sol Goodman, one of the city's major real estate operators, Jack Jamal and Henry Rosenberg, partners in Midtown Properties, a family named Finkelstein, operators of Times Square movie theaters, and a family named Lublin, owners of extensive property on the west side. All of the 30 establishments are major targets of the city's anti-pornography drive, and numerous arrests for obscenity or prostitution have been made at most of the places in the last two years. Officials of the landlord groups asserted that rentals to sex-oriented businesses were legal and that they had no right to evict such tenants. Furthermore, the landlord's representative said that because of high real estate taxes and worsening commercial conditions in the Midtown area, the sex merchants were among the few who could afford the necessary high rents. 
The Lublins, Charles, Edward, Lawrence, Martin, and June, are listed as the joint owners of two adjacent 8th Avenue buildings, which include a massage parlor and a book and peep shop. The Lublins also are the landlords for three hotels, The Court, The Travelers, and The Sun, which are described by the police as, quote, prostitute hotels. There are no listed New York addresses in the city's real estate records for the Lublins. They have a variety of addresses, including New Rochelle, Washington, Potomac, Maryland, and Hollywood, Florida. Edward Lublin, a lawyer who was interviewed by telephone from his Washington office, asserted that his family was, quote, trying to get rid of it all, unquote, the sex-related tenants. We just threw out Martin, who is my cousin, because of the way he handled the properties, Mr. Lublin said. I had no idea he was allowing those tenants in. Martin Lublin, whose residential or office address could not be learned, could not be reached for comment. Most of the buildings in question have been owned by the Lublins for five years. Edward Lublin said that a sex establishment would be willing to pay twice the rent of a, quote, legitimate tenant of three to $5,000 more a month. In the last two years, there have been 298 arrests, mainly on prostitution charges, in the buildings owned by the Lublins. The hospital workers' union, through an affiliate, the Ardeon Realty Corporation, is the landlord of 709 to 711 8th Avenue, where two massage parlors, the Bachelor's Garden Club and the Pleasure Seekers, and a topless bar, Hungry Hilda's, are situated. Harry Epstein, the union's financial secretary, said the building was sold by the union in 1967. But the new owner, Mr. Epstein said, defaulted two years ago on an $850,000 mortgage, forcing the union to become the mortgagee in possession. We got saddled with something unsavory, and we are doing the best we can to get rid of these people, given the judicial process, Mr. Epstein said. Seymour Durst, a former member of Mayor Beam's committee to clean up Times Square, rents space to two theaters listed by Mr. Baumgarten's task force as sex industry establishments. They are the Avon 42 at 133 West 42nd Street, which features live sex shows, and the Avon at the Hudson, 130 West 43rd Street, where explicit sex movies are shown. Mr. Durst said both properties had been acquired as part of land assemblage plans. He insisted that he had no control over the use of the theaters and that he was not making any profit from the theater rentals of $80,000 and $70,000 a year. In March 1976, Mr. Durst sold the West 45th Street Luxor Baths building after it was disclosed that it was being converted into the biggest massage parlor in the city. Please welcome to Terrific City, Jeremiah Moss. Jeremiah Moss is the creator of the award-winning blog Vanishing New York and the author of the book of the same name. His writing on the city has appeared in the New York Times, the New York Daily News, and online for the New Yorker and the Paris Review. Moss is the pen name of Griffin Lansbury, the name under which he's the author of The Nostalgist, a novel, and works as a psychoanalyst in private practice in New York City. Welcome, Jeremiah. Like an old forgotten friend. We're, we're sitting in the East Village in Thompson Square Park, and we're going to talk about um, a neighborhood that's not far from here, but like in New York terms feels very far from here. You, you're coming to the city in the 70s is, I think, where we should start. Can you set up this passage from, from your book uh, about Times Square, how you decided to start with this you know, vision of the Times Square through a seven-year-old's eyes? Mm-hmm. So it was 1978, and I was seven years old, and uh, I was a tourist, and I came with my parents. My father at the time was working as a dress wholesaler, and he came to the city for a meeting, and my mother brought me along. Um, and we spent the day, you know, going around the city and ended up at night in Times Square. And, um, you know, I, I, guess I, I guess I open with that because it's my first memory of the neighborhood. Um, I was probably there for half an hour, and I mean, it wasn't very long, right? Uh, and I think, you know, the way I write about it, that there was a feeling of um, excitement, and I... And I remember in particular uh, this guy who was he was a street performer a busker and the way I remember him 
he was in this kind of shabby, you know, uh, barbershop quartet kind of outfit. And that to me was the most exciting thing, to be singing and dancing in the street, which is, I guess, what I wanted to do. <laughs> I'm going to pull out the book right now. Yeah. I marked it for you. After a day of looking at dinosaur bones, ice skaters, and a singing, dancing little orphan Annie, I stood holding my mother's hand in the middle of Times Square. On that cold evening in 1978, I was a seven-year-old tourist on my first visit to New York, and I had never seen anything like this. It was night, but not dark. The Howard Johnsons flashed its orange and turquoise neon beneath the Gaiety Men's Burlesque Theater, next to a faded sign for the all-live Whirly Girly Review. A giant bottle of Gordon's gin splashed silvery booze onto Bond clothiers where A&P's 8 o'clock coffee cup steamed. The nearby movie marquees announced The Swarm and Saturday Night Fever and Second Run, along with 1001 Danish Delights, a dirty movie served with a box lunch, which is not as innocent as it sounds. Nothing I saw or heard bore the remotest resemblance to anything I knew from my small town back in Massachusetts, where the nights were black and the noisiest moments came in the mornings when tractor trailers rumbled down off the highway and a rooster crowed in a neighbor's yard. I loved Times Square instantly. I'd been primed to love it before ever setting foot upon it, having read and reread the cricket in Times Square, imagining myself as the intrepid adventurer who survives the streets on moxie and luck. My mother's vice grip on my hand as we hustled up Broadway told my seven-year-old heart that this was a place where things happened, and even then I knew I wanted to be where things happened. It left an impression on you in a, <laughs> in a short span of time. And I, forgive me for kind of psychoanalyzing this, <laughs> but it seems like this sort of, this longing to be somewhere that um, is on the edge of not being anymore has has left an impression you know when you're when you're in Times Square at that point um I don't know if it's fair to say that that's a high point but it feels like that's sort of the beginning of the end and you I I feel like that's the eyes through which you see the city and when you come back to the city as an adult in the 90s and you got to be back in that neighborhood what was that like compared to those those first moments it was still exciting in the early 90s in Times Square. Uh, there was a lot left. So it was before Disney had moved in. It was before Giuliani really bulldozed the place. You know, 42nd Street, the Deuce, as they called it, and they don't, I don't think anybody calls it that anymore. Uh, the buildings were still standing. I mean, a lot of them have been taken down. There were still these old CD theaters and marquees, but at the time, uh, Creative Time, which is an artist organization, had, had moved into these storefronts and put in art installations. And I didn't understand back then that art installations meant the beginning of the end, that it was going to be gentrified and this was part of the process. So I just, I just loved it because it was a mix of, of, of sex and you know, dirty bookstores, dirty magazine shops, um, peep shows, and art. Uh, and fairly pro, you know, some fairly provocative art. Uh, so it was this wonderful kind of mix. And um, I was very naive in thinking that's how it was going to stay. You know, there was a feeling of, I think the word edgy gets used too much, but it was a feeling of being on the edge of something in a kind of zone that was not so policed, not so um, invaded by the mainstream world. And as a queer person, I would say that's a kind of queer space. It's a border space. And that's what... Times Square was. It was, a, it was a border zone between the everyday world and something else. And that's probably what made it vulnerable, right? It's sort of this marginal space that on the one hand the city could ignore in a way that it didn't really want to have to get involved with that area. It was a little disreputable, but on the other hand it's very potentially lucrative space and you know you mentioned the art uh, as part of what sort of starts to make that turn and making people Realize, you know, and also as the city sort of turns from being, uh, you know, principally concerned with caring for people to being concerned more about attracting the right kind of people. So being more concerned about the people who aren't here and what we look like to those people. And I guess that's the moment at which the wrecking balls arrive and start 
taking down those those edifices and you talk about that time as seeing those the husks of the strip clubs and the adult the adult bookstores and the peep shows and wanting to to give them your coat and i feel like that sense of wanting to care for those spaces by that point in the city's history that was lost the idea that these were spaces deserving of care um it was almost like we had to be told that they weren't deserving of care so that we could just turn away as they were being destroyed. You know, the walls were coming down and you could see the innards of these places. So you would see like, um, you know, you'd walk down 40 seconds and you'd look up and there would be an internal wall that had been exposed and, and, and there were these mirrored, you know, pieces of glass on the walls and diamond shapes and then signs that would say like, you know, don't touch the girls or something like that. And they just felt so exposed, and of course, this is a this is a business about exposing bodies, and but it was also in a way private because you had to go inside, and it was on their terms too, and this was not on their terms. A lot of this was done through eminent domain. You know, this idea that you can't you can't really critique the quote unquote revitalization of Times Square from a sort of right leaning perspective, right? Um, the sex business is bad, it's, um, it's dirty, it's not pure, it's not clean, right? And from the left, uh, it's sort of like, well, these women were exploited is the argument. You can't have any positive feelings about what was there. It's not permitted. And I see that a lot as this, the show The Deuce on HBO has come out and people are... And there's been a lot of nostalgia for 1970s New York and Times Square and what it was and... Um, you know, so many photographs surface, and I'm curious about that nostalgia and how that's coming up now. Um, but also, there's a backlash against it, right? Like, how how dare we have any emotions for that place and that time? Yeah, nostalgia is—it's dangerous, but it's not. I find it very compelling, and I find it to be—it's how we remember, you know. Um, and I, and that's what I find. It's very emotional reading, reading your book, um, not just about this neighborhood, but also about the East Village and, and the whole sort of suburbanization of the city, which is in and of itself is a way of like robbing us of our memories, right? Like you can't, you look around and you just don't even remember what you've lost after a while. Um, would you say that that process of suburbanization started in Times Square? Maybe it was most keenly felt, the effects of it were felt there. Um, I mean, now it's, it's taken over almost the entire island of Manhattan, um, up to Harlem even. But how, how was that neighborhood sort of a, a test bed for that process? You know, if you think of Times Square at that time as this border zone or this rebel space that was not going to play by the rules... You could think of it as, to sort of analyze it, you know, that that had to be killed in order for the rest of it to be done. I don't know that one could say that's true, but that's that's a way of looking at it. You know, the suburbanization, it's hard. I, I really sort of grapple with what to call what's happening to the city and to cities all over the place. But it's corporatization, it's Disneyfication, you know, all these words apply, and they certainly all apply to what was done to Times Square. We spoke with Ruth Messenger, the former Manhattan Borough president in that in that era, the Koch era of, you know, who is this even neighborhood for? And and she said, you know, one of the early plans was to put up so many skyscrapers that it would essentially block out the sky. It would become a tomb. And, you know, on the one hand, maybe they forestalled that in the late 80s, early 90s. But it's a pedestrian plaza inside a tomb is what that neighborhood feels like now. That to me is sort of the most poignant and depressing part of this transformation. And you connect this to various parts of the city, but that pedestrian plaza in Times Square now feels like such a, a symbol of this. Like this isn't for us who live here. It isn't even necessarily for people who come here looking for New York. It's, I guess it's for people coming here looking to not even leave the place that they came here from. Absolutely. And it's the suburbanization of the psyche, too, right? So many of the people who, not only who are visiting New York, but who are who are longer-term tourists, which I think of the people who are coming here, and they're mostly young people, and they plan to stay for four or five years, and then they plan to go back to the suburbs. Uh, they're not putting down roots here. They're not really moving here. And they have a very different mentality. So I come from a small town, as many people who've emigrated to New York from America uh, do, and um, I really wanted to leave that culture behind. I I didn't want to bring small-town life in that suburban way with me. But a lot of people do bring it with them. You know, I was reading an article in New York 
couple weeks ago about Long Island City, Queens, and there was a woman who, so it's turning into the same kind of tomb, all these glass boxes, and they're all the same, and they're all very self-contained, and they, they're marketed as, you know, these buildings where you never have to leave the building, everything's in there for you. And this one woman said, um, I love living here because I feel like in my own, I'm in my own private hotel room. And I just think, why come to the city if you don't want to engage with the city? I, it's su- such a foreign concept to me. Cities are dirty and chaotic. They just are. And, you you know, I don't think you can really change that. I think it's try- they're trying to change it. But the city remains dirty and chaotic. And you can't entirely sanitize it, you know. It's the nature of cities. There, there's one of those towers going up uh, in downtown Brooklyn, which isn't even really a neighborhood, and it's going to have a Whole Foods and a, the ground level, and you can even have your groceries sent up to you. And that's a very different way of living in the city than, you know, living on a block with an actual grocery store or a bodega with enough groceries to get to, to, to have contact with your neighbors, right? That's what's being eroded here. And, and there's a way that, you know, even though, I guess what Times Square was stigmatized for and its dirtiness was somewhat about the the sexual entertainment, but it also seemed like it was just about that kind of contact, you know, that you would you would go to a diner, you would go to a, a lunch counter, you would, and all those places also, we lost them too. Uh, maybe we should pay tribute to those kinds of places as well and the way that they got swept up in this entire process of cleaning up a neighborhood. You know, how could a lunch counter become the target of a cleanup campaign? You would think that that serves a social function, and yet we lost those too. The Cafe Edison was the most recent one. The Grand Luncheonette. And have you ever seen the little the little documentary about the Grand Luncheonette? If you have a chance to go online, take a look at it. The Grand Luncheonette was on the first floor of I think the Selwyn Theater, and it was just this little hole in the wall. It had been there for decades. They sold hot dogs and knishes and things like that. And you know you'd you'd walk in and and the the, the marquee of the old theater. W- was above you and you know the paint peeling and the old light bulbs it was it was beautiful and um you know these places are democratic kind of spaces and they're you know in a way that the pedestrian plazas are are not they're not truly public spaces and they're also policed and they're often policed by these business improvement districts these bids and the bids are real estate developers that control and maintain and police public space, and they do it with their own private security forces. You know, so we have to really kind of think about what it means to lose public space in this way, what that means for things like, will public protest be allowed in the street anymore if, if this is what we're talking about? The luncheonettes and those spaces, even though they're private businesses also, they operated really differently than, you know, the social conventions and what people sought them out for cannot be replaced by that pedestrian plaza. Right. And, you know, the, the, the Cafe Edison, for example, I remember the owner saying, you know, there was like a homeless guy that he would give a bowl of soup to every day. And that was just what he did. And so there was a there was a group of magicians that would meet for lunch at their they had the magician's table. So I think of those spaces, the luncheonettes, the diners as spaces that also tolerated a lot of different kinds of people. They were expansive in in their openness uh, and that's also what the city used to be and should be where has that left you that the loss of Edison the loss of these places and and the the lack of ability of even our own government our own city to stand in the way look the city that we have today was created by policies and a lot of those policies came out of the 1970s and 80s after the fiscal crisis and were considered a solution to the fiscal crisis so you just need new policies. I mean, it really is that simple in a lot of ways. The hard part is changing hearts and minds. And, and that's really also what was done coming out of the 1970s. The city was neoliberalized in the late 1970s. I mean, that's what happened. And, you know, we have this ethos of the free market and trickle-down economics and let's give corporate welfare to the developers and the big businesses and that will help everybody, right? But it doesn't help everybody. It mostly helps the already rich and powerful. Uh, And it takes the local character out of cities and it sanitizes cities and it corporatizes and disnifies and hypergentrifies and all that stuff. And, you know, the neoliberal project was very much about, and Margaret Thatcher talked about this, about 
capturing people's hearts and minds. And I, th I think of neoliberalism as a meme, as a thought virus, um, because even when you talk to people who are otherwise intelligent and insightful, they don't know that they've been brainwashed. And, and I will put myself in that category to a certain extent. I remember asking a question of Bill de Blasio when he was running for mayor. This was on, on Reddit. He did a chat. And I asked him about saving small businesses. And his answer uh, included that commercial rent control was absolutely out of the question. And I thought to myself, oh, of course, of course, that's crazy. That's madness. How could we have commercial rent control? We cannot interfere with the free market in that way. But New York City had commercial rent control for almost 20 years after World War II. And other countries and other cities and other countries have had commercial rent control. Uh, so it's absolutely possible, but you have to have a different belief system. You have to have a belief system that values these little places, that values the individual over the corporate, uh, that, that understands that wealth does not trickle down, that a rising tide does not lift all boats, that those are lies, and they've been disproven. And so, you know, it's time for something new. And I really love, I, I just read an interview with him, but I have to get his book, uh, George Monbiot's new book, and I can't remember the title. But he talks about stories, and he talks about how, you know, in the earlier part of the 20th century, we had this uh, Keynesianism story, right, which was about uh, taking care of the vulnerable and using taxes to do that, basically, and, and redistributing wealth in that way. And then the story changed to the neoliberal story, and the neoliberal story is what I just said, and it's that it's time for a new story. And, and he, so people like him and Naomi Klein are starting to put forth what's the new story, because we can't go back to what it was before, but we can take some of that and, and move forward. Um, yeah. And that's the way to not forget also. I mean, not to try to relive the past. We can't. It's physic You cannot go back to Times Square, as you said. It's just physically unrecognizable. We can't go back to the New York of the 60s, the 70s, the 80s even. Um, we yeah, and, and also those times, too, right? I, I think some people think that I'm, that I want to, uh, some people, it's really weird. Some people are like, oh, you're like Donald Trump. You want to make New York great again. It's like, uh, this is, what are you talking about? But you know, to go back also means going back into a time that was racist and sexist and homophobic and all of that, right? And that was all ingrained in what was going on. So going back, again, I just want to reiterate, not the option. Um, but it is going forward, you know, kind of going back to empathy, which is really what you're talking about with the, I want to give my coat to these places, right? To have, to have empathy for spaces. I have empathy for spaces because spaces are inhabited by human beings and they're infused with human spirit and history and emotion and need and a lot of what the book is really about is countering that false narrative of it just happened it's natural it's always been this way these are these are the, these are neoliberalism's memes this is how they get into our heads we need to fight a meme war. Like, we need new memes. It hasn't always been this way, and it can be different, and another future is possible. I want to close with a spin on a question. We usually ask people to think of a piece of media that most exemplifies New York in the 70s for them, but I feel like it would be a grave error not to ask you about a place in New York from that time that um, I'm going to presume is gone. Maybe one of the places that you talk about in the book. It doesn't have to be. I mean, there's, you know, there's CBGBs, of course, a place that, that birthed so much of 70s culture in terms of music. What is CBGBs now if people walk down the Bowery and they try to stand in front of that building? Uh, sorry, a rat just went by. And I... Oh, it's so touching. Yeah. Tompkins Square Park is still Tompkins Square Park. So when you walk down the Bowery now, CBGBs is a John Varvatos boutique. And John Varvatos is a very high-end fashion designer. He's uh, capitalizing on the history and the culture and calling it preservation, right? Which, which maybe it is, you know, I guess it's, you, you could debate that. Uh, so when you go in there, uh, some of the walls from the original club are uh, behind plexiglass. And um, I don't know if he still has them, but he was selling a bunch of vintage T-shirts at one point. You know, I think there was a cheap trick T-shirt for something like $300, you know, used thrift store tees. 
that's Disneyfication too, right? Like, you can no longer have the authentic experience. You can have this mediated, curated experience. You know, if you have the money, you can you can buy into that experience. If you don't have the money, you can walk in and look at it uh, and take some pictures. You can't really engage with it. You can't. You you can no longer engage with the real. And now we must say goodbye to Jeremiah. To learn more about him and his work, you can visit his blog, Vanishing New York, at vanishingnewyork.blogspot.com. And you can also follow him on Twitter at Jeremoss, J-E-R-E-M-O-S-S. And you can get his book, Vanishing New York, wherever books are sold. to be a Brooklyn Dodger But I ain't a hitter anymore You know I had a reputation The homework for last week was to find the easily accessible, for once, flaming creatures. Um, a 1963 avant-garde 43-minute film by Jack Smith uh, that was originally uh, shot and shown in New York City, but then became a little bit of a cause celeb. If you were an art person and of the intelligentsia, you probably were able to see this film in the 60s around when it came out because it did travel, it did get exposed to people. However, it was also running afoul of the law, and every time someone would attempt to show it, there would be as much of an attempt to squelch it. This film has had a very long life, um, and it appears it was only really actually after Jack Smith's death that it really was widely seen, once it became part of museum collections and retrospectives of his long career. Uh, and we know that the film was screening in New York in late 1971, which is about where the Deuce has taken us. Um, though what we know of sort of the characters of the Deuce, it's probably only the gay bartender who may have gone down to anthology film archives to watch this film. Behind the Green Door is what made me think of this movie, um, because there are so many similarities that it almost seems bizarre to me that the Mitchell brothers who made Behind the Green Door probably didn't see this movie. However, everybody who went to see The Green Door as kind of a trendy thing to do probably did see Flaming Creatures. Anybody who was in the room watching The Boys in the Sand in this episode of The Deuce would have probably seen Flaming Creatures. But then, yes, it became incredibly hard to see. And the, the production of the film also ties us back to Times Square. Um, as far as we know, uh, much of the film was filmed on the rooftop of the old 48th Street Theater, which is at 157 West 48th Street in the heart of the theater district today. Theater is no longer there. Um, it is now a parking garage. And if you go look at it on Google Maps, you can see that it actually has ads for Avenue Q posted on it. Uh, so that moment in time has been archived. Um, when this film premiered in New York in 63, um, there were some, some small screenings. Um, but by 1964, when it was screened at the Bleecker Street Cinema, um, it was busted. And Jonas Mikos, the film exhibitor, uh, was charged with obscenity as well as several other people involved in exhibiting the film. And Jonas Mikos, you know, of course, legendary film critic, film curator, um, also involved for a long time with Anthology Film Archives. Was he one of the co-founders of Anthology? It, no, he, he founded, founded Anthology. It. He was, it was right. his. So it to think that, like, you know, this is somebody who in 1964 is facing criminal charges for obscenity for exhibiting the film, but in 1971, Anthology is not only exhibiting the film, but advertising that in New York Magazine, which is how we know that it was being screened. This seemed to be his, his like, pet pet thing to get this thing out there and to run afoul of the law every way he could. Right. I think almost as, you know, kind of in the way, like, you know, 10 years, actually 20 years later, you'll have like a similar thing happen with like Todd Haynes and Superstar where, you know, it's because it's impossible to see that it becomes such a big deal. Right. And that's for 
slightly different, but sort of overlapping reasons, right? There's a lot of pop music in both of these, and like that is That's not licensed. That, that is a very modern issue of licensing, which is still plaguing us to this day, as we have discovered, instead of an obscenity. But um, but yeah. The one more thing to say on the, the obscenity case note. So the obscenity laws of 1964 are not the same as the obscenity laws today, nor are they the same as the obscenity laws of 1971. Um, but what what fascinates me about this obscenity prosecution in 64 is that the prosecutor in New York City behind this, Gerald Harris, um, 51 years later, uh, wrote to the New York Times after they had run a story on Jonas Mikas to apologize for his prosecution. And Jonas Mikas accepted the apology. Jonas Mikas at that point was 92 years old um, and still working. <laughs> so, you know, it, and, and by that point, Jack Smith had died. He died in 1989 of AIDS-related pneumonia. Um, I'm sure many of the performers in Flaming Creatures had also died by that point. But, you know, this film... I think even though it is a film that is very much of the 60s and itself quotes cinema back to the 20s and there's even sort of like 50s jukeboxy kind of stuff quoted here, um, that it just has a really long life. Yeah, we should talk about what you're going to see. I, I didn't mention exactly. So if you are sitting in your college class and um, someone puts in and I'm pretty sure it was a VHS rip because I don't think it was particularly easy to find prints of this. If you were to sit down watching a VHS of a 16 millimeter print of flaming creatures you would not know what era you are watching the film was intentionally shot on degraded outdated spoiled film stock to kind of achieve the same kind of look that brackage had look, done by actually mangling his footage but in the case of jack smith when he used it to shoot these scenes um, which are basically not unlike the plot of Behind the Green Door and that it is a assault that then devolves into an orgy. Like there's lots of wigs and pearls and heels and it's all being told in close-ups, high contrast. It almost looks like you're watching like a Theta Bera romp. Whatever Theta Bera had to do to make her eye makeup legible on the film stock, like the nitrate film stock of the 20s, you see that here again, even though the film stock is expired film stock. So this isn't anything done in post. This is like, you know, playing with the, the limitations of that stock, which then sort of reproduces this 20s. It's a very disconcerting effect, but it makes sense. And it makes me actually wonder how much the the glamour that I associate with drag of this period is also owing to this film and sort of the images that this film shared, like collapsing all of those different glamorous eras, the 20s and the 50s. Yeah, I mean, like if you if you actually go back and look at old pictures, I mean, I feel like that's something that was a tradition in kind of queerness, even before queerness had an identity. If you look back and look at old pictures of Oscar Wilde, I mean, there's plenty of pictures of him and just like amazing costume drag. Um, so I think drag was very much like kind of a part of things, but I feel like this is one of the first times we see it really committed to film in such a fanciful and kind of disturbing way. I They were definitely going for something... I mean, they are depicting an assault, but it's an assault where you can tell everybody in the scene is laughing and having a big problem trying to keep it all together. You know, it's like it feels like they they must have been cracking up after every every time they ran out of film. This is, and it also feels a little different than sort of the the like kind of Bella Pock dandyish drag crossover. Like this to me feels like a very specific American drag that nods to Hollywood glamour that is about sort of responding, whether that's in quotes or in camp, to Hollywood glamour. You're probably onto something, but I think I think this particular thing is definitely harkening back to B-cinema and to silent era. But I think even that comes out of theater, and even there's a drag that comes out of that. Sarah Bernhardt, you know, like, which is kind of pre-film. Pre that this does exist on this, like, queer, queer continuum is kind of great. A fabulous new heart-shaped lipstick. It shapes your lips as it colors them. Toss out your lipstick brush. Wave goodbye to your lip liner. Now created a lipstick that shapes the perfect outline every time. It's the new heart-shaped lipstick. No more blurring, no feathery edges, because this lipstick is pointed and curved like a heart. It draws a flawless line. 
get into corners as no rounded lipstick can. The conduct that we're seeing in this film, whether that's depictions of cross-dressing or allusions to sodomy or any kind of same-sex sexual conduct, um, that conduct is criminalized in the place where the film was made. So, you know, if police had reason to bust this set, that's something that people faced. And then you're filming and projecting conduct that is also currently criminalized in the city um, and in, in many parts of the world where the film is going to show. And so I think just appreciating that sense of, of risk taking with doing this, you know, I think now it's very easy to be like, well, this is, you know, if it's film and it, that's not an outlaw activity, right? And this wasn't really a porn, so it's not an outlaw activity. It's like, that wasn't an argument that you could make. Even though, you know, folks like Susan Sontag did, you know, to say like, well, this is art. Um, and so it shouldn't be, you know, uh, prosecuted in the same category of obscenity. And, and, and maybe that's sort of a rhetorical strategy to, to carve out space for this film. But, you know, there's always, and we've talked about this on the show quite a bit, this, this interplay and this relationship between porn and art and obscenity and, you know, legitimate media, um, that this is, you know, I think that's part of the reason that this film has a long life is it takes us like right into the heart of that, that getting hashed out in public. One of the uh, the legacies of the film, um, I was surprised to see it come up just this past year in in a moment that that uh, that seems like history repeating itself, where the Supreme Court had a vacancy, um, sort of between two presidential administrations, and a Supreme Court justice um, it was to be nominated, and you know just as we just went through with uh, Obama trying to get a justice onto the court before the end of his term, and and failing, and so that meant that that Trump got to do so. Uh, in 1968, um, as Lyndon Johnson's presidency was coming to a close um, and Nixon was on the way to the White House, there was also a Supreme Court vacancy. It was actually Justice Warren. Nixon said he would play neutral, you know, that he knew he wasn't president yet, so he wasn't going to, um, to put anybody forward and he wasn't going to interfere. But this is Nixon. Like, he interfered. And he interfered by looking the other way when his lackeys, like Pat Buchanan, who uh, wrote the story up in 2017, and also Strom Thurmond, who you may remember as one of the most openly racist members of Congress, who was also besties with Nixon, um, they conspired to, to keep uh, Johnson's nominee, Abe Fortas, from moving forward. Abe Fortas, uh, was part of a previous court decision that actually sought to reverse the obscenity ruling for flaming creatures. And that was one of the reasons that Thurmond and Buchanan and Nixon thought that they could use to, to block his nomination. And so in what has been since referred to as the Fortas Film Festival, Flaming Creatures <laughs> and several other films were screened for members of Congress in a small private screening in Washington, D.C. You know, that, amongst another, a few other factors, essentially killed the nomination of Abe Fortas. And frankly, I honestly don't know if those senators watching this movie would have been offended or just confused. I mean, one said he was so confused it made him sick, like he couldn't get turned on. <laughs> and so it was confusing and yeah. Yeah, exactly. I wonder what it was like to watch it in the theater in 64 versus what it was like to watch it in the theater in 71, sort of after the obscenity uh, battles had been waged and you know by 71 like the film probably has a different kind of stature where it's like being advertised openly in the you know magazine like New York magazine and I wonder um, you know I know that Jonas Mikas and 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 um, Jack Smith fell out at a certain point also so I, I wonder like kind of who felt like their their vision of the film won is it a fun campy escapade or is it like a high watermark high art moment does it matter I, I don't know I sort of feel like it's like watching the recreation the like post Wells death recreation of touch of evil combined with oh my god I finally got a copy of the Star Wars holiday special I feel like there's like a, a bit of I never thought that I would actually live to see this and at the same time kind of it's like opening it's opening back up something that like you know you thought was gone or that you thought was closed or that you thought that was destroyed I think it's the rareness in combination with its importance um, and finally kind of letting it have the credit it deserved which is why I kind of compare it to like you know touch of evil you know, something that was mangled and then someone went back into it and recreated it and re-released it in accordance to the director's original intention. This is not an altered movie, but it's being shown
shown in accordance to like you know the original intention of it having viewership and i wonder also that with 71 we've talked about this with with boys in the band sort of how boys in the band had this dual life pre and post stonewall um i wonder if there was also pushback on flaming creatures in a post stonewall way or if it was you know the kind of, of of gender and sexuality narrative of flaming creatures actually lends itself to a post Stonewall world. Um, these are just questions. I don't have the answers to these. Yeah, but. I don't have answers to that either. Yeah. But like, I mean, just because it was just adding, like I said, it was adding another point of order to a conversation that you know it just was expanding it. Um, and then, I mean, judging by the fact that something that reminded me of it ends up in a mainstream porno chic porn even though the creators probably never saw this. And even, I if think they, again, even if they never saw it, I think it's, you know, the, the one of the most important reasons to bring it into the, the 70s and Times Square porn moment is to acknowledge and, and pay homage to the fact that it was filmmakers like Jack Smith and exhibitors like Jonas Mikas who took the knocks for the obscenity law, who ended up through the work that they did, both as filmmakers and as sort of film activists, um, opened up space for many more people to create work that was not going to be criminalized so severely. For next week, we invite you to watch the 1973 film by Sidney Lumet, Serpico. We have talked so much about police corruption and this really, if you want to find the high watermark 70s film of the NYPD and how far they will go to stop a whistleblower, this is where to start. Serpico, Al Pacino, Next week, we'll be back here to talk about it. This has been Terrific City. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever it is you listen to podcasts. And while you're there, leave us a review and help more people find the show that way. You can tell your friends. Please also support us on Patreon so we can keep bringing you more seasons of Terrific City. You can do that and also find show notes for this episode and all of our previous episodes at terrific.city. You can also follow us on Twitter at TerrificCityPod and on Instagram at TerrificCity. And you can leave us a message. Call us at 347-380-5450 and we may play it on a future show. With that, we'll say so So long long from from Terrific City. Ponderous, man. Ponderous, fucking ponderous.